spiritual blindness. You know, there's one thing that we, none of us would probably give for anything, and that's our eyesight. To have our eyesight means so much, uh, especially the day and age in which we live. There's so much that there is to see, um, not just the beautiful scenery of California. You go to the coast, you go to the desert, you go to uh, the mountains. Uh, it's, it's beautiful. It's a beautiful place, beautiful place to live. And uh, it's so great to be able to go out and to see the fall leaves or to see the rain and the snow on the mountains. Um, And we see all that through our physical eyes. And I don't think there's a person here that would say, oh, I'd give up my eyesight. It doesn't mean a lot to me. Matter of fact, some of you are giving up your eyesight, not by your own will. (laughs) We all are, actually. Uh, Sooner or later, sometimes... Our eyes catch up with us, and uh, the contacts and the glasses don't seem to work as well. And after a while, um, you know, your eyesight eventually, if you live long enough, uh, probably fails. Well, not only have we all, we all value our physical eyesight, but there's also another realm in which I want to look this morning, spiritual eyesight, spiritual blindness. And since the fall of Adam, you might say every person on the earth has been born spiritually blind. That's what the Bible says. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Um, And those people who are spiritually blind, John MacArthur basically puts them in two categories. Those who will never see and those who see by the will of God through the grace of God, by the power of the Spirit and the work of Christ. The person who rejects the Savior remains blind forever. The person who confesses him as Lord is given spiritual sight, is spiritual life. Uh, Most people, though, do not have a desire for that kind of sight, for spiritual sight, the same kind of desire they would have for their physical eyesight. Um, Matter of fact, the vast majority of our population is spiritually blind, and frankly, they don't really care. (laughs) Uh, There's not a whole lot you can do to affect change in their lives. You can give them the gospel, but even that, uh, God has to work in their heart. Um, Well, Jesus has some things to say about spiritual blindness. In John chapter 1, and this is kind of a way of introduction, John chapter 1, verse 9 to 11, Jesus was the true light, which coming into the world, the, the, the Gospel of John says, enlightens every man. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, and the world did not know him. He came to his own, and those who were his own did not receive him. And even Paul declares, although in, in Romans chapter 1, we read from Romans, this is kind of feeding back. Romans chapter 1 uh, Verses 20 to 22, Paul says, Since the creation of the world, God's inevitable, invisible attributes, his eternal power, his divine nature, have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made. But mankind, being rebellious, did not honor him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculation, and their foolish heart, it says, was darkened. The opposite of being enlightened. Even in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14, Paul says, A natural man does not accept the things of God because 
the things of the Spirit of God, because they are foolishness to him. He cannot understand him, because they are spiritually appraised. Ephesians 4.18, unredeemed men, it says, are darkened in their understanding, excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the hardness of their heart. Even in the Old Testament, we see over and over again issues of darkness. One in Psalm 82.5, it says, The wicked do not know, nor do they understand. They walk about in darkness. Most of the world, beloved, is in darkness. I don't know about you, but when I was little, I didn't really have a fear of darkness. But I remember when my nephews and and I would go upstairs to my brother's room, and he'd be in there with his friends, usually partying or doing something, and he had this incredible stereo system. And I remember we used to go up and we used to knock on the door, and we'd run and do all sorts of things to him. And he'd be in there partying with his friends. And I remember one time we knocked on the door and all of a sudden we heard this sound come out of the stereo and the door swung open and it was totally dark, but the black lights were on in his room. He was one of those kind of guys. And he had just, they had like weird paint on their face. It was the oddest thing. And all he had on the stereo was, I am Iron Man. Remember that song? And it just came blaring out. And I remember just running down. I was so scared of what was in that room. You know, darkness doesn't appeal to most people, all right? But there is sometimes when you want it to be dark, when you're trying to sleep, when you're trying to, you know, relax or whatever. You don't want bright lights shining in your eyes. Well, there's three things, basically, and we're going to look at those this morning, three things that contribute to man's spiritual blindness. All men are spiritually blind, but why is that? Well, the first, basically, is rather simple. It's sin, It's sin. And in John chapter 3, it points that out to us. The first one, spiritual blindness, John chapter 3. Verse 19, it says, Men loved, what? The darkness, right? Rather than light, for their deeds were evil. There's a reason why people enjoy being in darkness. It's because their evil deeds can be concealed. That's why when you talk to a police officer, you talk to someone in law enforcement, what's the busiest time for crime to happen? Usually it's not during the day. I mean, we live in a society where people are becoming more brazen and they'll go up and hold, hold up a bank or do whatever, rate cameras on and everything. People don't care anymore. But a lot of times, a lot of bad stuff happens at night. That's just the way it is. Because of sin. Secondly, the second contributor to spiritual blindness is Satan himself. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4, Paul writes in verse 4, The God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving, that they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. See, it's only through the supernatural work of God pulling that veil away from our eyes so that we can see the gospel and the glory of Christ. And that is important to understand because you have to understand, first of all, there's sin as a mitigating factor here. There's also Satan, but there's also a last thing, and sometimes this comes into place, God's sovereign judgment. God's sovereign judgment. We've seen that in the Bible on certain occasions. When because of their sin and their allegiance to Satan, they continually reject the light that has been given to them, And there comes a point in time where God judicially confirms them in their own darkness. 
of those in Jerusalem who rejected him, he says in Luke 19.42, If you had known in this day even you the things which make for peace, but now they have been hidden, what? From your eyes, it says. Who's doing the hiding? It's God. And in the Old Testament, you see with Pharaoh and you see with other people that God has hardened their hearts at times. See, that's why it's important to understand that when you're exposed to the truth, when you're exposed to the light of the gospel, don't take that lightly, literally. (laughs) That's a very serious thing. Because either your heart will grow fonder and grow closer to God, or you will grow harder and further away. There's no middle ground. Well, In way of introduction this morning, in Matthew chapter 13, remember the Lord has described this age. He began describing it with the parables. He began to say that uh, this is going to begin with his rejection and it's going to end with when he returns one day. And so we have this long period of time, 2,000 plus years, known as the church age or known as the age of mystery. And in the Old Testament, this was a time that was almost kind of, in a way, overlooked. Because they thought, well, the Lord's going to come back. He's going to set up his millennial kingdom. They didn't know anything about the church. They didn't know anything about the time in which we live. And so God, in Matthew, went over basically seven parables to teach them about this mysterious time. And what he taught them was basically that some are going to reject and some are going to believe. The majority are going to reject. The majority are going to reject the Messiah. And you're going to have wheat and tares growing together. And he went on, parable after parable, and explained that. Six of the eight discuss the rejection that people have of the gospel and Christ. The other two basically show us that uh, there is a faith that exists in this time, but it's not the majority. That's why a lot of times people today don't understand why just everybody's not getting saved. Why the churches just aren't filled to overflowing with people coming to Christ. Well, that's not the way it's going to be. And so, throughout Matthew, he's given us little pictures of what this age would look like. And mainly, it's going to be an age of rejection. People are going to reject the truth because they're spiritually blind. Well, we're at the last of those illustrations here. And with verse 8 of chapter 16 in Matthew, that section ends. And you're going to see from chapter or verse 13 of Matthew 16 on, Jesus is going to basically kind of wash his hands of the religious leaders, and he's going to spend time with his disciples and those who are willing to follow him. So I want to read for us the text this morning, just so we understand what we're looking at, because it's, it's an important text for us to grasp. In Matthew 16, verse 1, it says, Then the Pharisees and the Sadducees came and testing him, asked that he would show them a sign from heaven. And he answered and said to them, When it is evening, you say, It will be fair weather, for the sky is red. And in the morning, <clears throat> it will be foul weather today, for the sky is red and threatening. Hypocrites, you know how to discern the face of the sky, but you cannot discern the signs of the times. A wicked and adulterous generation seeks after a sign, and no sign shall be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. And he left them and he departed. Now when his disciples had come to the other side and they had forgotten to take the bread, then Jesus said to them, Take heed and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And they reasoned among themselves, saying, It is because we have taken no bread. 
But Jesus, being aware of it, said to them, O you of little faith, why do you reason among yourselves because you have brought no bread? Do you not yet understand or remember the five loaves of the 5,000 and how many baskets you took up? Or the seven loaves and the 4,000 and how many large baskets you took up? How is it that you do not understand that I did not speak to you concerning bread, but to beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees? Then they understood that he did not tell them to beware of the leaven of bread, but of the doctrine of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Well, we see here that there's so many people that are rejecting Christ at this point in his ministry. It's not the majority anymore that's following him. There are those people who are following for a miracle or a free meal, but as far as legitimate Christ followers, there's not a whole lot here. And it's interesting to me that when we set this up, when we look at the setting of what we're looking at, it's almost as if Jesus at this point in time, he turns a switch and he says, okay, I'm done with you, with the Sadducees and the Pharisees. Look at verse 1. It says, then the Pharisees and the Sadducees came. Now, where is Jesus at this point? I think there's a map up there, if you can put that uh, slide up, Kyle. Next one. Jesus was way up on near Tyre and Sidon, and the last time we saw, he passed down the right-hand side of the, the Sea of Galilee, and he, now he's worked his way back over to uh, an area at the end of chapter 15. It, 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 in my translation, it's Magdala but there's Magadan and Magdala, and they don't really know where this place is, to be honest with you. But he's on the uh, western shore of the Sea of Galilee. And this is after he has miraculously fed 4,000 plus men and, or plus women and children, 4,000 men plus women and children, in an area which is um, mostly a Gentile area, that of Decapolis on the other side of the sea. And he spent a majority of time, probably a month or so, in a Gentile area. And a lot of things happened up there, and we've gone through those things. But now, as soon as Jesus gets to, back to Jewish territory, back to the land of Israel, he's been in Gentile land, and they, they really wouldn't want to go out there because they defile themselves. But here they are, the welcoming party for Jesus. He's come home from his long trip with his disciples. And it says, the Pharisees and Sadducees came testing him. Uh, Here we see, very simply, a confrontation, once again, between Jesus and his foes, between Jesus and his enemies, between Jesus and those who don't want to be followers of Christ. They don't want light revealed to them. They don't want their eyes opened. They're Christ rejectors. Now, the interesting thing is here is you have Pharisees and Sadducees in the same sentence because these two groups of people literally hated each other. They were both religious leaders. They were both part of Israel. But the the Sadducees, you have to understand, they were a little more liberal in their theology. They were the high priests and the chief priests. They were kind of the the, uh, cream of the crop as far as society goes. And you had the Pharisees who were the working class people. They were the people like Paul. But they were very literal and conservative in their interpretation of the law. 
Whereas the Sadducees were like, well, you know, I know the law says this, but it's really not convenient for me to do this because of my business, so it's okay. I'm just going to overlook that part of the law and do this. The Pharisees would never do that. They were extreme legalists. And these two groups of people literally hated one another. They're both Christ rejectors, though, which is interesting. They're both wicked. They're both personally, willfully blinded by their own sin. They're satanically blinded. And now we're going to see that they're going to be sovereignly blinded by the hand of God. And that's usually how that works. God reveals light to us in stages. He doesn't just give us everything at once and, boy, we just come to Christ the first time we ever hear the gospel. That very, very seldom happens. It does happen, but very seldom Usually it's progressive. You're given some information about Jesus or the Bible and you go investigate it and then you come back and you're, you're, you're struggling with it. And the reason you're struggling with it is because there's a spiritual war for your soul going on which you can't see because you're not spiritually attuned to the situation. Every time someone grapples with the gospel, there's a war going on for that person's soul. In the spiritual realm. Remember in Matthew 13. Jesus even quoted Isaiah. And he said Isaiah predicted that you'd be like this. Hearing and. You don't hear and seeing. You don't see. You can't understand. He said basically Isaiah said. Because your hearts are wicked. Your hearts are filled with sin. And so here we have them again. The Pharisees and the Sadducees coming and you notice why they're coming they're coming to test him they're not coming to see what other miracle he can do they've seen miracle after miracle after miracle with him and he had just accomplished an incredible miracle feeding all these people in the gentile area and the the response was incredible But now he's back in the land of Israel, and they send out the welcoming party, the Sadducees and the Pharisees. And the first thing they do, they don't say hi, they don't say anything. They get right in Jesus' face, and his disciples' face. And they wanted to test him in front of the people that were around. I mean, to show you how much these two groups of people disagreed, you remember in Acts chapter 1, uh, where basically the Apostle Paul was on trial late in the, uh, in the book of Acts, later on in the book of Acts. And, and throughout the book of Acts, you see, you know, these religious groups kind of pitting against one another. And he's be on trial in the book of Acts before the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And all he has to do is he basically just steps up and he says, you know what, I believe in the resurrection. And as soon as he said that, what happened to these two groups of people? They started fighting against each other. Classic move. The Pharisees also believed in the resurrection, but the Sadducees did not believe in the resurrections. They did not believe in angels. They did not believe in spirit. They did not believe in immortality. They were theological liberals, you might call them. But the Pharisees were the conservative ones. And all Paul had to say was, you know what, I believe in the resurrection. And these two groups of people, they hated each other so much, they couldn't even focus on the task at hand, the trial of the Apostle Paul, and they started fighting with one another. The Pharisees, you might call them fundamentalists. And the Sadducees were just the opposite. They were very liberal. 
in their understanding of everything. Uh, They didn't accept the traditions of the elders. They didn't accept the traditions of the rabbis. They accepted only the scripture, but they didn't believe it literally. They spiritualized it away. It sounds like some in our churches today. But the Sadducees were the, the higher class people. They were the, the high priest was a Sadducee. And the, the Pharisees tended to be the, the poorer people in the community. And so you have these two groups of people, and it's interesting how two groups of people that hate each other totally can focus on one thing, testing Jesus, capturing Jesus, embarrassing Jesus. And probably the larger of this group was the Pharisees, and the idea here, it says the Pharisees and Sadducees, has the idea that the Sadducees were just kind of mingled in among the Pharisees. And so they came with an express purpose to test Christ. They don't come to Jesus for the answer. They come to test him. And that's the way people who are willing to deny the truth usually are. They're looking for an out. They're looking for um, you know, something to, to catch you on. They're looking for something that doesn't support the truth of the word of God. And basically, they'll spend more time trying to dig up something on Christ if these folks would have just stepped back and honestly looked at what Jesus had done and who he was. Maybe God would have opened their eyes, but they were not willing to do that. It says they came testing him, and they asked that he would show them a sign. So there's a sign demanded here, and the the sign here is from heaven. Notice that's what it says. They don't want him just to heal more people or grow more limbs or or feed more people. That's not good enough for him anymore. Now they've kind of upped it a little. They want a sign from heaven. See, and that's how these folks are. They're always looking for a sign. That's just, unfortunately, the way some unbelievers are. Some unbelievers do not... You could show them all the signs in the world. They're still not going to believe. But they do demand a sign here. You've heard the phrase, birds of a feather flock together, right? Well, that's exactly what you have here. The Pharisees and the Sadducees, as much as they are apart, they're focused together on one thing, and that's to hate and to kill Christ. And they don't want to seek him out for any advice. They don't want to seek him out for any kind of spiritual input. They just want to catch him, and they demand a sign here from heaven um, to discredit him, not to prove who he is. That's their motivation. Remember, in the Old Testament, Pharaoh, God kept demonstrating his power to Pharaoh over and over, right? And Pharaoh, what, kept hardening his heart. Remember that? He didn't want any answers. He didn't want any signs. And finally, God just devastated the whole kingdom. Or you remember the brothers of the rich man. The rich man said, send somebody to my brothers in the Gospels. And the Lord says, well, if they don't believe Moses and the prophets, what makes you think they're going to believe somebody else? They're not going to believe that. See, when a person's heart has turned to darkness, and when the light comes, really, they'll curse the light. They don't want to have anything to do with it. It's an illustration of Voltaire, the French atheist. 
quoted as saying this, even if a miracle should be wrought in the open marketplace before a thousand sober witnesses, I would rather mistrust my senses than admit a miracle. That's how hardened this man was. Because sometimes when a sign is demanded, even if the sign was given, they wouldn't believe. And that's basically what Jesus does here. He denies them. They wanted something in the sky. They wanted something, kind of Elijah kind of a deal, coming down from heaven. And he said, in verse 2, he answered them and said, When it is evening, you say, it'll be fair weather, for the sky is red. And in the morning, it will be foul weather today, for the sky is red and threatening. Hypocrites, you know how to discern the face of the sky, but you cannot discern the signs of the times. So they request a sign, but they're denied any sign, except for the sign of Jonah. You've heard the, the, uh, the sailor's um, little phrase. Well, that's similar to what Jesus is saying to these folks. It'll be fair weather for the sky is red. And in the morning, it'll be foul weather if the sky is red in the morning. And it's, we, we've heard that and we, 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 we understand what Jesus is saying to them. But really, he's, he's really insulting them. You have to understand who these people were. These were the keepers of the law. These were the people who were supposed to know the signs of the times. And they want another sign? They should already know that he's the Messiah, based on Old Testament alone. It's amazing how many fulfillment that Christ prophecies, Christ has fulfilled. Uh, fulfilled in prophecy. Over 300 Old Testament prophecies were fulfilled when Christ came. I mean, that's not done by a coincidence, beloved. There's got to be some legitimacy there. And yet there's still people that believe, no, it's all a scam, it's all this whole faith thing, this whole church thing, they just want your money, on and on and on. Well, what Jesus does is he turns to them and he says, you want a sign? Go back to being a meteorologist, is what he's saying. You shouldn't be dealing with theology. You shouldn't be dealing with keeping the law because obviously you can't even do that. You're not very good at that. And so he denies them any sign because he knew if he gave them a sign, they'd deny that anyway. There's an individual by the name of Thomas Hobbes. He's a famous English philosopher in the 17th century, and he was totally atheistic, godless person. And his biographer describes his death in these words. When the atheist Hobbes drew near to death, he declared loudly, I am about to take a leap into the dark. How sad is that? How sad is that to come at the end of your life not knowing what eternity holds for you? Even, I mentioned Voltaire earlier, the French atheist who openly mocked God. Felt the stroke which realized would terminate his death. Says he was overpowered with grief. He called us all in. These are 
his friends, unbelieving friends. And the biographer says this, he cursed them to their faces and he loudly repeated, be gone, be gone, it is you that have wrought me in this present condition. Leave me, I say, be gone. What a wretched glory is this which you have produced for me. Then the writer said that he hoped to allay his anguish by a written recantation of his unbelief. So he had it prepared. He signed it. He saw it witnessed. But it says it was unavailing. For two months he was tortured with such an agony as led him at times to gnash his teeth in impotent rage against God and man and at other times in Plaintive accents, he pleaded, O Christ, O Christ, O Lord Jesus. And then, at last, he turned his face and cried, I die, abandoned by God and man. See, that's the result of someone who has hardened their heart to the truth of God. No wonder Jesus calls hell outer darkness. It's the place of perpetual spiritual blindness. Well, what does he mean here, a sign of Jonah? He calls them hypocrites. He says, you're better at telling the weather than you are signs of the times. He says, a wicked and adulterous generation seeks after a sign, and no sign shall be given to you except the prophet Jonah. And he left and he departed. He's talking about the resurrection. He's talking about his own resurrection. He's talking about the time when he dies on a cross and is buried. And the third day he rose from the dead, literally. Hundreds of people have testified to that. And he's saying, even that's not going to be good enough for you because you've totally rejected the truth. You're going to get a sign, all right? The Son of Man is going to rise from the dead. See where it says there? It says he left them and departed. That's a very finalizing, finalizing words, you might say. It's kind of like he said, you know what? I'm done. I'm done with you folks. That's it. No more. And he walks away. That's a point that an unbeliever can get to. Yes, God is a gracious God. He's a merciful God. He's a God who loves us dearly. As I said earlier, there's also a time when his sovereign judgment arrives. And when that happens, I mean, I even hesitate to say that it's too late. But when that happens, truly, it's too late. These people were not going to be saved because of their rejection of the light that was given to them. And so we see that Jesus and his foes, they have this confrontation, the Sadducees and the Pharisees, they demand a sign. Christ denies the sign but says, you're going to get a sign, my resurrection one day. But I know you're not even going to believe that, so see you later. It's almost like he washes his hands and he walks away. Well, look at Jesus and his followers in verse 5 to 12. 
It says, now when his disciples had come to the other side, this is where he went. He went from the eastern shore of the Sea of Galilee to the western shore of the Sea of Galilee. It's interesting to me that the disciples follow Christ. They go where Christ goes. You say, well, so do the Pharisees and Sadducees. <laughs> yeah, but they had a little different motivation when you say Pharisees and Sadducees came to test him. But it says his disciples had come to the other side, and they had obviously have a relationship with Christ. They followed Christ. They sought out the light. They didn't reject the light. But they face a little dilemma here. It says they had forgotten to take the bread on their little trip. Now, you might say, well, that's kind of silly. Why would they just, you know... Oh, they, they're kind of freaking out because they forgot the bread. Well, back in those days, you know, you didn't want to go out into the wilderness. You didn't want to go out without food. I mean, you would literally take food with you because you didn't know what was going to happen. You could get stranded somewhere. You could be on the boat in the middle of the sea for a long time and not have anything to eat. You always had food with you. So it was kind of a, a big deal for them that they had forgotten to take the bread, there wasn't an In-N-Out or a Heimerhaus Deli or a McDonald's to go and grab something real quick. They didn't have that kind of luxury. You had to take your food with you. Mark 8.14, comparative passage, says they looked around and they found one bread cake. That's kind of one little piece of a cracker. And that wouldn't have been enough. And so they were concerned. At what level do you think the disciples are operating at this point? Do you think they're operating at a spiritual level or do you think they're operating at a physical level? Physical level, right? They're, they're probably hungry. I mean, they just got to the other side. They probably think, oh, man, we forgot the bread. You know, it's like going on a long hike and saying, oh, where's my power bar? Where's my granola? Where's my water? I mean, it was a pretty big deal. I mean, they're in the presence of God himself, Christ, and yet they're focused on physical things. Isn't that like us? I mean, we have the power of God, the Holy Spirit within us. We have the promises of God before us. He won't leave us nor forsake us. The righteous won't go hungry. He's going to provide as he provides for the birds of the air and the grass of the field. And yet when we look at our check account, what do we do? We freak out. Oh, what are we going to do? Because we operate on a basic physical level, a material level. He had just created enough food to feed probably 20-some thousand people twice in their presence. They'd seen miracles. They'd seen limbs grow back on people's bodies, literally, before their eyes. And they get to the other side of the sea here, and they say, oh, you know what, we don't have any bread. What are we going to do? You know, one thing 
when you're a disciple of Christ, the one thing you understand is the Lord takes every one of their extremities really as a divine opportunity to teach truth. If you want to become a disciple of Christ, you have to depend on Christ. And at this point, they're not really depending on Christ. They're a little nervous because they don't have their food. And so he takes this opportunity to teach them something. Because he hears them talking. And it says in verse 6, Then Jesus said to them, Take heed and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. They were worried about bread, and the Lord uses this as an opportunity to teach them something. He wants them to understand, to come up to the spiritual level. Stop focusing on the physical. I want you to focus on on something higher than that, on a spiritual plane. I mean, at this point, the, the cross of Christ is months away. So it's coming up fast. And he sees his disciples still kind of dealing with petty issues like this. And he's a little concerned. And so he wants to take an opportunity to tell them to get off this mundane idea about physical bread and put it on a spiritual level. Focus on something spiritual. And so he begins to talk about the Pharisees and the Sadducees and their teaching. That's fresh in his mind. He just came out of a confrontation with them. And he wants his disciples to understand, you have to be aware of these people. He warns them about the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees, trying to get them off the physical and into the spiritual realm. I mean, a lot of times today in our churches, just in general, just the way we do things, a lot of it is a lot of stress on the physical. when really we should be putting more stress on spiritual issues than we should physical issues. That's so important that we learn that personally, and even as a church, are we focusing on spiritual issues in our community? Are we focusing purely on spiritual issues? Are we focusing on physical issues in my life, in our lives, or are we just focusing on spiritual issues? And so what he says is, you don't need to be concerned about physical bread. You need to be concerned about this influence of the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Leaven, when you made bread, you take a little piece of, of, of dough before it was baked, and you put it aside, and it would ferment and it'd become sour. And when you would bake your next batch of bread, you would take that and put it in there. And that would affect the whole whole batch of bread. It's yeast. It's, that's that's what, how bread works. And so leaven really meant to, something of influence. It could be good or bad. We always think of leaven as something bad. Well, not necessarily. It could be something good. But here, he's talking basically, don't take anything from the Pharisees and Sadducees as far as their teaching goes. Don't deal with them. 
That's what he's trying to get across to them. Now look at what they say. In verse 7, they reasoned among themselves saying, it is because we have, not, we have taken no bread. They're focused so much on this idea that they didn't take any bread physically that Jesus, even when he comes out and he says, hey, take heed, beware of the leaven of the Pharisee, the Sabbath. What he's saying is don't worry about that. I mean, I could go like this and we'd have tons of bread. Don't worry about that. And then he sees their response. They didn't even get it. It went right over their head and they reasoned among themselves saying, it is because we have taken no bread. That's why he's talking about leaven. But Jesus, verse 8, look at what he says, being aware of it, being aware of it, that's four words. Do you know there's nothing that Jesus is not aware of in your life? Nothing. Not one thing. He is aware of everything that is going on in your life right now, right up to the second. He knows you're thinking about that sandwich down at the Heimer house or that, <laughs> that, that burger, whatever we just mentioned earlier. He knows that's what you're thinking about because he's aware of it. He's aware of the fact that maybe you're gleeful and happy that the Giants won, but you're a little concerned how they'll do in the World Series and you're wondering, hmm. He's aware of that. Someone pointed out to me this morning, they were all excited and they said, but you know what? I said, what? They said, well, game one. You know when game one is? I'm like, they said, Wednesday. I'm like, okay. They said, you know when game six is of the World Series? I'm like, what? The following Wednesday. And I'm kind of dense, and I'm like, okay. Well, we have Bible study on Wednesdays. (laughs) I said, oh, okay. That was interesting that, you know, I mean, and so sometimes, you know, we, we have to be, aware of certain things, but the important thing here is that he is aware of our needs, beloved. He is aware of their concern they don't have any bread. He's aware of the fact that they don't have a clue what he's talking about. He's aware of the fact that you may be sitting here this morning and not be a follower of Christ. You may be just curious. He knows that. And he knows what it's going to take for you to put your faith and trust in Christ. But with that being said, Don't be careless with the truth that is given to you. Don't be careless with the light that is shed upon your heart. Be willing to investigate it. Be willing to apply yourself to it. Be willing to cry out to God and say, God, help my unbelief. Because it's a very real thing. Jesus is aware exactly where you're at, just like he was aware where they are. I just like those words. But Jesus, didn't get frustrated, being aware of it, he said to them, look at what he says, O you of little faith. O you of little faith. Why do you reason among yourselves because you have no, you have brought no bread? In other words, get off the physical. Get on the spiritual. Why are you Why are you focused on a loaf of bread? For goodness sakes. And he goes on and he says, haven't I fed over 5,000 people? Haven't I fed over 4,000 people? And you had leftovers. You know what I like about Jesus' answer? 
He didn't say, but it doesn't say, but Jesus, being aware of it, said to them, Oh, you of no faith. <laughs> that would be a condemning statement. See, he wasn't condemning them. He was just stating the facts as they are. Where's your faith? You have some. That little faith can save you. Faith of a mustard seed can save you. So they do have faith. They are Christ followers. Oh, you of little faith. Why do you reason among yourselves? Why do you try to get together and figure this out yourself? Just come to me. That's what he's saying to them. Haven't we been in this predicament before? On the physical level, haven't I always provided for you? How many times has, have you been in a fix with your family, maybe a financial fix or situation, whatever it might be, and God comes through? Maybe not the way you wanted him, but he comes through. He makes his presence known. See, we need to hold on to those times, beloved. And what was happening with the disciples is... Not that they were being forgetful, but they just needed their priorities reordered. I don't think they forgot. I don't think that they forgot about the 5,000 loaves, or the 5,000, five loaves and the 5,000 people. Or in verse 10, he brings up the seven loaves and the 4,000, and how many baskets were left over. What he's saying is, have I never not provided for your needs physically? Verse 11. He says, how is it that you do not understand that I did not speak to you concerning bread? I'm not talking about nice, hot, French bread, you know, with butter. That's not what I'm talking about here. As good as that is, that's not what I'm talking about. He says, but to beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. The doctrine of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. That's what it goes on to say. But to the doctrine. Then they understood that he did not tell them to beware of the leaven of the bread, but that of the doctrine of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. See, the Pharisees and the Sadducees were Christ haters. They didn't want to have any, anything to do with Christ other than dismantle everything that he stood for and embarrass him in front of people. And so we come down to this end of the, the portion of this scripture and we see, wow, in verses 1 through 4, the Pharisees and the Sadducees were face to face with the Son of God. All the light that they could ever imagine was hitting them right in the face. And they didn't get it. They didn't get it. And it ends and he left and he departed. Meaning that he left them in that spiritual condition. Those are people who are spiritually blinded who will never ever see. Because they're not willing to see the Savior. They're not willing to come to Christ. And yet in verses 5 through 12 we see people who are struggling with their faith. But at least they have some faith. At least they have seen Christ do miraculous things and they realize in the end, yeah, you know what, Jesus, you're right. You've always fed us. And yeah, we do need to be aware of this teaching, this leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Because their doctrine was a damning doctrine. 
He didn't want them to go after that kind of a teaching. See, it's their hypocrisy. It's the Pharisees and the Sadducees, the people that put on a good front, but inside they hate God and they hate Christ. And these Jewish leaders were influencing the society in their day to become very legalistic, to become very focused on what is on the outside and on the outside only. I mean, when you get to that point, when you're worried about more what somebody's wearing to church than the condition of their soul, or you're worried more about the music somebody's playing at church than the condition of somebody else's soul, where they're going as a believer or unbeliever, you got problems. See what I'm saying? We're focused on physical things. And we need to change our thinking. That's what the Pharisees and the Sadducees, that's what their doctrine was. They were focused on physical things. They were focused on the outside. They were focused on how they looked, how they presented themselves. And they looked good. It wasn't that they didn't look good. They had all their robes and their stuff on. and Boy, they looked very religious. But see, that's not the point. The point is not for us to be religious. The point for us is to have a growing and, and uh, edifying relationship with the Son of God so that we can see Him affect change in our life. These Pharisees and Sadducees, they just continued on with the same old stuff day after day after day after day. And unfortunately, our churches are filled with people like that. They continue week after week after week. You ask, hey, what has God done in your life lately? They'd say, oh, well, you know, uh, yeah. and they really got to think. Why? Because we're focused on the physical. We need to stop and we need to change our thinking. We need to ask God to do something fresh in and through us, not only as a church, but as individuals. What Jesus is sharing here with his disciples It's the same thing we need shared with us today. Oh, ye of little faith, why do you try to figure it out among yourself? And then fill in the blank, whatever your issue is, because you don't have any money, because you don't have any whatever. God doesn't want us to try to reason among ourselves. God doesn't want us to kind of figure this out for ourselves. He's teaching them a profound spiritual lesson here. And he's saying basically, you know what? You need to cut the cord with everything that's had any influence on you in your previous life. That's why he's talking about the Pharisees and the Sadducees. These people grew up with those folks. They looked up to them. And Jesus is is telling them, don't even go down that road. We don't want you to end up like they did in verse 4, where he left and he departed them. And so we need to, this morning, kind of focus our hearts and our minds on the spiritual things that are before us as individuals, as families, and even as a church. Because 
The unfortunate thing with spiritual blindness is it affects everybody. And the only ones who have their eyesight restored spiritually are those that come to the Savior. Father, we ask this morning that you would move, that you would work in our hearts. Lord, I pray that we would not be like the Pharisees and the Sadducees, that we would not turn a deaf ear to the truth that is being revealed to us. But Lord, that our hearts would be tuned in to your frequency. And Lord, maybe we're not a Christ follower. Maybe we're just searching this out. But Lord, I pray that we wouldn't do it in a casual way. Father, if we were going to have our eyes plucked from our body, from our head, at the end of this service, we would probably start figuring out ways to make that not happen. Because we value our eyesight so much, physically. We'd run out of the building. We would, we would look for ways to prevent someone from poking out our eyes and causing us physical blindness. And yet, many in our society today are spiritually blind. And yet, they're so casual about it. They don't really care. Lord, you have to do that work in their heart. I pray that they would cry out to you, Lord, help my unbelief. Help me to see the truth for what it is. Because there is truth. And we can know it. We can know absolute truth absolutely when we know the Savior who is the source of that truth. So I pray this morning that you would quicken our hearts to change. Lord, if we're believers and we are focusing on the physical, not the spiritual, Lord, that's, that's a form of spiritual blindness because we get so focused in on the physical, we, we don't even consider the spiritual anymore. And yet, we may be spiritual people. Lord, help us to reorganize our lives, reprioritize our lives, so that they're representative of what matters spiritually, not just what matters materialistically and physically. And Father, we'll praise you for it. And we thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Let's stand together.